Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. Today's message is titled, Why Does Membership Matter? For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. In 1933 in Detroit, Michigan, a radio station with its call letters WXYZ launched a new action-adventure series called The Lone Ranger. The show was based on a fictional character named John Reed, who was the only survivor of a group of Texas Rangers after being ambushed by outlaws who killed his five other fellow officers. He was nursed back to health by an Indian named Tonto. He put on a mask, named his horse Silver, filled his gun with silver bullets, and then set out to fight injustice. The ranger's code of conduct was simple. He never smoked, he never swore, never drank alcohol, never shot to kill, and he used good grammar. No colloquialisms, no slang, Nothing like that. Episodes were simple and formulaic. The Lone Ranger and Tonto would ride into town on their horses, discover someone being victimized by bad guys, and then use their expert marksmanship skills and hand-to-hand combat to set them free and beat the bad guys. The problem would be solved, and they would ride off into the proverbial sunset. The show was an instant hit. Children loved the pace of the action on the radio show, and parents approved of the role model that the Lone Ranger was setting for their children. By the end of the 1930s, the Lone Ranger and its theme song, the William Tell Overture, were being heard on over 400 stations across the country and listened to by 20 million people. By the 1940s, the lines... Hayo Silver, away! And Kimosabi, and who was that masked man? Had become part of the American dialect. In 1949, the Lone Ranger radio show evolved into a TV series on the ABC television network. It was also equally successful. It wasn't long before actors Clayton Moore and Jay Silverheels, who played the Ranger and Tonto respectively, became icons at the dawn of the TV Western age of television. As admirable as the Lone Ranger's heroics were, there are two legitimate concerns that many of the fans of the show overlooked, and these are concerns that I had after reflecting on it, because I saw it in syndication in my childhood, and I was reflecting on this recently. First of all, the Lone Ranger wasn't accountable to anybody. He was totally autonomous. Secondly, he wasn't known by anybody. The drawback of wearing a mask to protect his identity is that he was never transparent, and as a result, no one got close to him. The Lone Ranger may have helped numerous communities, but he was never part of a community. 
Unfortunately, it has become normal for some Christians today in our culture to operate like lone rangers. They avoid being accountable or known by anyone. They may even help a church community, but they are actually not part of that community. We're taking a break from our Unlikely Heroes series today, but I want to encourage you to come back next week for the exciting and dramatic conclusion of that series. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but I'll conclude Unlikely Heroes next week. But today's message is one that I've been chewing on for several months and have felt impressed by the Lord to share today. And so I'd like to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to Acts chapter 15. We're going to look at a handful of passages in the scriptures today. And if you would pull out the sermon notes in your worship folder, I've got a lot of content for you, a lot of blanks to fill in for those of you that like that. And I'm going to hopefully send you home with a lot of good stuff today. Our big idea is this. uh, in this message uh, called Why Does Membership Matter? It's, it, it's, it's simply this, and I've tried to make it as short and as memorable as possible. So I hope it sticks in your craw, as they like to say in the Old West. It's God's will that believers be belongers. It's God's will that believers be belongers. This message may be uncomfortable for some of you, and I fear it might even cause you to stop liking me and may cause you to stop coming to our church. Why? Well, because I'm going to scratch an itch by challenging you to make a commitment. Why is that uncomfortable? Well, I'm glad you asked. I think it's uncomfortable because... We live in an age where commitment is mocked, but detachment is championed. Our culture promotes a lifestyle of not being tied down to anything because being committed to something is seen as a hindrance to experiencing everything. And so the world sees detachment as a way to keep your options open. So that if things get uncomfortable, you can follow your heart to find something more comfortable. That's the language of the world. On the other hand, the language of the scriptures includes terms such as covenant, perseverance, promise, and devotion. Thus, While the world champions detachment, God's word commands commitment. And we need to be aware of this because the culture we live in can influence how we interpret the scriptures. And when we let this happen, we will inevitably miss what the authors originally intended when they wrote the scriptures. So we need to be aware of what some theologians call cultural bias when we approach the word. Now, some of you might be sitting here thinking, man, this would have been a good Sunday to stay home. Or, man, this is like way over my head. I'm too old to be thinking about commitment issues. Or I'm too young. Or, you know, so 
Let me just clarify who I'm talking to this morning because I don't want you to misunderstand me. So if you are not yet a member of Vanguard, I'm talking to you because I want you to prayerfully consider membership. If you don't believe membership is biblical, I'm talking to you because I want to challenge your thinking today. And if you're already a member of Vanguard and you're thinking, I don't need to hear this message, I'm talking to you too. Because I want you to know why membership is important and I want you to be able to explain its importance to those who are not members yet. Okay, kidding, sort of. I want you to be able to go to the scriptures and defend membership and explain it to people, why it's important. And so seriously, my prayer is that this message will be hopefully the most eye-opening and helpful message on membership that you've ever heard. And so once our ushers have locked the doors and all firearms have been turned over to our security team, we'll begin. Here's the first point on your outline. When we talk about membership, the first thing we've got to do is define what is church? What's the meaning of church? And after you write meaning down, if you would, look at Acts chapter 15 with me. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. It says, But some men came down from Judea, and they were teaching the brothers... Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church... They passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and they brought great joy to all the brothers. In verse 4, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. Now, the word church, when it shows up in the scriptures, almost always is the Greek word ekklesia. You see it there on the keynote screen behind me, ekklesia. It means assembly or gathering. And more specifically, literally it means called out ones. The word is used 100 times in the Old Testament. It's used 114 times in the New Testament. It means called out ones because it usually refers to God's chosen people whom he has called out of the world to be distinct, to be different, and to be used by him. It also means the Lord's church is always and will always be people. It's not a building. It's not an institution or a denomination. When God's word uses the word church, it always means God's people. Now, the Bible breaks down the church into two categories. So here's letter A. The first category is local churches. Local churches. A local church is a gathering or group of Christ followers in a specific community. 
We see this in verse 3 of Acts 15. It says, they were sent on their way by the church. This refers to the local church of Antioch, where Paul and Barnabas were. They had a significant doctrinal issue that came up, which was, does Old Testament circumcision still have to be done on men that profess faith in Christ in order for them to be saved? And so they weren't able to resolve this issue themselves in the local church of Antioch, and so they were dispatched to go up to Jerusalem to, it was sort of denominational headquarters where James and uh, the apostles and church leaders were to get a ruling. It was like going to the Supreme Court. They wanted to get a ruling on this issue, and they needed help. Now, here's some interesting tidbits about local churches in the Bible. Out of the 114 times in the New Testament that the Greek word for church is used, 90 of the 114 uses refer to a local church. Most of the New Testament was written to local churches. Colossians was written to the church in the city of Colossae. Ephesus to the church in the city of, sorry, Ephesians, written to the church in the city of Ephesus, Thessalonica, and so on. They were all local gatherings of Christ followers meeting in their respective cities. We know also that local churches matter to Jesus because he gives performance evaluations to seven local churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And by the way, if you read Revelation chapter 2 and 3, you'll want to notice that Jesus isn't pleased with, nor does he bless every local church. It's quite a sobering read. So, letter A, there are local churches. And then letter B, the Bible also talks about universal church, the universal church, meaning all Christ followers everywhere in the world. We see this in verse 4. It says they were welcomed, Paul and Barnabas, when they got to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church. It's a reference to the apostles and the elders and the leaders representing the entire church of Jesus Christ. I want you to see this because Acts 15 is an example where we see the local and the universal church referred to in the same passage. Thus, legitimate local churches are pieces of the larger universal church. So why is this important? Well, the New Testament teaches that all born-again Christ followers are automatically made members of the universal church. The New Testament also teaches that all born-again Christ followers should choose to become members of a local church after they are saved. More on this in a few minutes. What I want you to get so far, though, is that although the Lord adopts believers into the universal church, excuse me, after they're saved, it's also his will that believers choose to belong to a local church. Next, number two, the marks of a local church. This discussion leads to a natural question, which is, well then, what is 
What defines a local church? What counts, according to the Lord, for being a local church? If the universal church is all believers everywhere, then how does God's word define a local church? Well, seminaries and theologians call the study of the church ecclesiology. Do you see the Greek word ekklesia in the root there? It is essentially all the Bible verses put into a bucket or a category that talk about the purpose of the local church, how conflict should be resolved, the role of church leaders, and much more. The New Testament letters provide five marks of a local church that define whether an assembly is really a church or not. This is important because there are parachurch ministries, small groups, not-for-profit organizations, and even some churches that call themselves churches or try to be like a local church when they actually are not. And so what qualifies? Well, here's small one, two, three, four, and five under Roman numeral two on your outline. The first qualifier is preaching the scriptures. Preaching the scriptures. The first distinctive that defines a local church is the proclamation and application of the Holy Scriptures. Real biblical preaching has both a substance and a style to it. I like to define preaching as boldly declaring the authority of God's word, which is the substance, and doing so with urgency and without apology. That's the style. Preaching is not a motivational talk. It's, it's not a Sunday school lesson or a small group discussion. That's not, those are not preaching. It is boldly declaring the word with urgency and authority. Next, corporate worship. Corporate worship. The New Testament also instructs local churches to gather regularly to adore and celebrate who God is through singing and giving. Thus, students shouldn't have their own worship time Sunday morning during the main worship service because the music isn't modern enough for them. And senior adults shouldn't have their own little worship time during their Sunday school class because the worship music is too modern for them in the main service. That's a divided church. In the New Testament, local churches all gathered together to worship. They didn't segregate by ages based on musical preferences. There was only one style of music. So corporate worship. Next, elder and deacon government. Elder and deacon government. The New Testament letters also contain counsel for how churches... Local churches should be organized. This includes who should lead, who should teach, what responsibilities they have, what qualifications they have to meet. According to Paul, elders are to be men who hold firm to the trustworthy word as it is taught so that they may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who defend it. Thus, 
Just another example here. A family who chooses to stay home and watch worship services online from the comfort of their own home doesn't qualify as a local church because they're not under anyone's authority. They're not sitting under elders. They're not accountable to anybody. And another example where this comes up and is an issue, having a board of directors filled with successful businessmen who don't shepherd and can't teach doctrine doesn't qualify as a local church elder board. Sadly, there are some churches that do that. They don't call their leaders elders. They call them the board of directors. And those board of directors aren't qualified according to 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. And they don't do the things that 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, and 1 Peter 5 say elders should do. Here's the fourth mark of a local church. That's church discipline. Even fewer churches do this, sadly. Church discipline is the Lord's instrument for restoring a rebellious member into their relationship with the Lord and their relationship with the church. It protects the gospel's witness. It protects the unity of the church. And it protects the rest of the church from the unrepentant sinner. When church discipline works, the believer matures spiritually. And when the believer refuses it, the church always suffers. So church discipline is talked about, and you see the references there on your outline. It's something that churches are supposed to do. Finally, the fifth mark is the ordinances of baptism and Lord's Supper. Local churches are supposed to practice baptism and the Lord's Supper. Jesus instructed his followers to do these two ordinances as ways to remember the gospel. Baptism reenacts the believer's conversion experience by illustrating the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And the Lord's Supper helps us remember Christ's death on the cross for our sin through the breaking of bread and the drinking from the cup. So the five marks of a local church in the New Testament, preaching the scripture, corporate worship, elder deacon government, church discipline, baptism, and Lord's Supper. I'll give you an example of just my own life where this came up. I remember the first time I ran into this was when I was in college. My wife and I, we were involved in uh, Camps Crusade, which is an on-campus college ministry. We had a gathering on Thursday nights where we would get together, sing songs, uh, do skits, some activity, and, and then we'd hear a talk, uh, a, a, a speech or some kind of message from a staff member. Uh, at the time we were at the University of Iowa, we had a significant campus ministry. It was about 100 students, and there were five or six full-time staff members. Well, I remember one particular peer of mine, uh, when I invited that peer to come to church with me on Sunday morning, the response I got was, well, I don't need to do that. I already go to church Thursday night at Camps Crusade. And I remember thinking... I know that's not right, but I can't prove him wrong. <laughs> I, know that's, I know that ain't right. And I know he's saying that because he wants to stay out late Saturday night and I have to get up early on Sunday morning. But I couldn't prove him wrong. The reality is, later once I got to seminary and studied the word, I went, Eureka! Now I know why he was wrong. Unfortunately, it was about 10 years too late. But, but in reality, Camp's Crusade did not preach the word, 
Campus Crusade for Christ, as great as a ministry as it was for my wife and I, they didn't practice church discipline. We didn't do baptism or the Lord's Supper, and there were no elders. Not the only thing we did on this list was we worshiped. But it wasn't church. So it's God's will that believers be belongers to a local church. Next, if you would, turn in your Bibles uh, with me to Hebrews chapter 13. Let me show you another passage. Hebrews chapter 13. For the last few weeks, I've been reading articles on church membership, and I've perused two books on this topic because I, I knew I believed in church membership, but I really wanted to do my homework and try to put together a message that would build the case for it. And so I've been thinking about this for weeks now, and um, one article I read uh, uh, talked about the issue of church membership in this passage. Hebrews 13, I'm going to read verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Here's number three on your outline, and that is the myth of non-membership. The myth of non-membership. The strongest opponents to church membership often argue against it by saying the word is not in the Bible anywhere. You can't find membership in the Bible. That's true. I can't argue with that. But did you also know, neither is the word Trinity. The word Trinity is nowhere in the Bible, but hopefully you believe in the deity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in their trying relationship. The reason you hopefully believe that, as I do, and we believe that as a church, is that there are plenty of verses that prove the doctrine of the Trinity. And so... My point is, you see, a a doctrine doesn't have to be specifically named in order to be a legitimate Bible doctrine. It just has to have enough verses to support and prove it. In other words, local church membership is implied in the scriptures because there are enough verses to support it. It was assumed by the churches that were being written to And those churches were usually the only church that existed in their city. And so being committed to a local church in the first century was so important for believers to survive that being uncommitted was never considered by them. They needed the church because Christians were being persecuted back then. Now, hidden within Hebrews 13, verse 17, are two nagging questions about local church membership. Here's the first, letter A on your outline. Who are believers supposed to obey? The author says, obey your leaders and submit to them. Well, well, what leaders? If there's no biblical support for church membership, then how should individual believers apply this verse? Which leaders are they supposed to obey? 
Are they supposed to obey and submit to the leaders at Church A down the street? Or Church B? Or Church C? Which church? I think one of the biggest reasons some believers don't believe in church membership is that deep down in their heart, they don't want accountability. And to be honest with you, they may not even realize it. And I think one of the reasons pastors don't emphasize church membership in some churches is they don't want to do the hard work of keeping people accountable. Because it is hard. And sometimes it's costly. I have often compared being a longtime church attender instead of a member to moving in with someone you're dating without ever getting married. People cohabitate together nowadays because they want the benefits of marriage without the commitment that it requires. Cohabitation says, in essence, I can expect things from you, but you can't count on me for anything. And if it gets hard, I'm going to move out, and I'll say we were never married anyway. But that's what makes marriage, the marriage covenant in particular, so special. Biblical marriage is a husband and a wife standing before God and witnesses, making a covenant before God and with God as the guarantor of that covenant that they will fulfill certain roles in marriage, and if they don't, they'll answer to the Lord for it. Well, our membership covenant works the same way. As a church, we will do X for you, if you, as a member, do Y for us. It's an agreement. You fulfill this role, we as a church will fulfill this role. And we make that covenant before God. And I think there's plenty of evidence in the New Testament letters, and even in the Old Testament, that believers had that kind of covenant relationship and community with each other. Now, the absence of church membership makes it difficult to apply a good portion of the New Testament Uh, For example, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul tells the church in Corinth to kick a guy out of the church who was causing problems and unrepentant. Well, how can you put somebody out of the church if they were never in the church? You see how it gets difficult and dicey to apply? Because he could go, well, I was never a member here anyway in Corinth. I'm going down to Ephesus. because they don't know about my sin down there. Or, or say when Paul told the Galatians that they were to bear one another's burdens in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, <laughs> how are you supposed to know whose burdens you're supposed to bear? You see, if there's no church membership, then there's no limit to the burdens you and I would have to bear in order to apply Galatians 6, 1 and 2. See, are we just supposed to share one another's burdens here, or are we responsible to bear the burdens of every other church in the city. So, Hebrews 13, 17 raises the question, who are believers to obey and who are believers responsible to? It also raises a question for me and for elders. The second nagging question is, who are elders accountable to and accountable for? 
I'm sorry, they're accountable to the Lord, but who are they accountable for? So, for example, will I have to give an account to the Lord for the spiritual health of all the believers in our city? Or just the ones that are here? Or maybe just the ones in our zip code? You see, if there's no church membership, then whose souls am I supposed to watch over? Where, where does the boundary stop? Or is there a boundary? Several years ago, I, I served on staff at an older established church that had a television ministry, but no membership process. Every Monday through Friday, one of the five assistant pastors, and I was one of them, had to go and visit anybody in the three city hospitals who claimed our church as their church. We had to go visit them. And the way it worked is we had one of our secretaries would call each of the three hospitals and say, hey, do you have anybody from our church there today that lists our church as their religious affiliation? Yeah, 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 we've got five people. And then she'd call another hospital. Yeah, we've got three people. And she would put together a hospital list, and then that would be emailed out to the pastors. And if you were the one on call that day, you had to go drive around, or I did, and to go visit all those people. Now, why is that a problem? Well, it was a problem because, and I'm not opposed to hospital visits. I know that I joke about it, but I'm not against it, and I actually do enjoy doing it. But what I want you to see is the stewardship dilemma that's created when there's no membership boundary put in place. I had to go and spend all day, a couple times a month, driving to the three city hospitals, seeing people that most of which had never come to our church. They just watched us on TV. So they never worshipped with us, they never gave, they never served. Or if they used to, it had been years since they had. And then by me doing that, it took me away from the people who were worshipping, giving, and serving faithfully. And so I always had a struggle with, man, I'm losing a whole day out of the office this week to go and do these hospital visits for people who really aren't a part of our church. But they watch us on TV. There are chaplains at each hospital that can minister to people there who don't have a church. Why am I having to go out and do this? It's not a good use of church resources. And it, it caused me to give a chunk of my time to those who didn't worship with us and weren't a part of our church and to take that time from those who were. So this principle of stewarding the church's resources, it comes up when Paul talks about care in 1 Timothy 5, lest you think I am an insensitive, hard-hearted person who doesn't care about the sick. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, you can read it later, Paul tells Timothy, who's pastoring in Ephesus, in essence, don't give money out to just any widow. And Paul goes into a lengthy discourse of qualifications for widows to get a handout, to get benevolence and financial assistance. In essence, he says they need to be part of a church, of the church. They need to be godly. They need to actually have a legitimate need. Why? Because there are people that will take advantage of the church. And Paul didn't want Timothy getting sucked into that. So this is why churches who have a biblical understanding of membership, they set aside some benefits 
for members only. And their thinking is, they've committed to us, so we will commit certain privileges and benefits to them. Okay, next if you would turn to Hebrews chapter 10. So just turn back a couple pages, a couple chapters to chapter 10, Hebrews 10. And then after you turn there, write down point number four here in your outline, which is the merits of church membership. So what are the benefits? The merits of church membership. In some churches, membership is a formality that carries so little weight that it's nearly meaningless. But at Vanguard, we believe membership should have blessings and benefits for both the church and our members. So here's just a few. Uh, Letter A, membership is a public expression of a covenant commitment. It's a public expression of a covenant commitment. The book of Acts contains several numerical references to those who made professions of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. This strongly suggests that not only was the early church tracking its growth, but also distinguishing those who were part of the church from those who were not. Choosing to become a member is in essence saying, I am going to entrust the spiritual care for my soul to this one local church. Like a marriage. In sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, until death do we part. Well, almost. But you get the point. Letter B. Membership is also a practical application of the New Testament teaching that we should be members of one body. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul compares the local church to the human body. He writes, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor can the head say to the feet, I have no need of you. And he goes on to explain how each body part is important and interdependent on each other. In the same way, a believer, according to 1 Corinthians 12, cannot say, I don't need to be connected to a local church. Because that would mean they are a hand or, say, a foot without a body. And not only is that thinking unbiblical, it's creepy and gross to think about a foot just laying there on the ground with no body to it. There's a foot. Where's the rest of the body? I don't know. It's just sitting there. I don't know why that came to mind late last night when I was writing this. You can see my mind was wandering off into places it shouldn't have. So it's a practical application of 1 Corinthians 12. Next, uh, letter C, and we'll, uh, it's a personal admission that you need to be accountable to church leaders and a church body. It's a personal admission that you need to be accountable to church leaders and a church body. And after you write that down, if you would, look at Hebrews 10, verses 24 to 25. So the author of Hebrews says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. I want you to notice two things in these two verses here in Hebrews 10. First, notice the mutual dependence we are to have on one another for encouragement in the faith. There will be times when you need a spiritual kick in the pants, as they say, from another member, 
And there will be times when another member needs a hug from you. Second, notice in verse 25 how some had formed the habit, meaning there was a pattern that had been established, of being disconnected from the church. And the author clearly says, this is not good for them. It's neglectful, he says in verse 25. Becoming a member is not only a commitment to worship, serve, and give faithfully, but it's also giving other believers permission to speak into your life and to hold you accountable for your own spiritual good. Membership helps you grow spiritually. And here's letter D. It's a powerful protection for the church family. It's a powerful protection for the church family. Church membership ensures that those who associate with our church have made a profession of faith to the elders, they've agreed with our doctrinal statement, and they've signed our membership covenant. Our covenant simply reinforces things like worshiping, serving, giving, avoiding gossip, resolving conflict biblically, and growing spiritually. And because our members have committed to doing those things and one vision, one set of values, and one doctrinal statement, it strengthens our unity and reduces the chances for divisive conflict. Whereas I've witnessed, sadly, in other churches where I've served, when there isn't a covenant, there's not a robust doctrinal statement, and there's no clear vision or values, conflict seems to happen more often in those churches, and there's less unity. Now, just a few other benefits I want to mention before we move to our applications. Members of our church are also eligible for elevated ministry positions, such as team captain, or small group leader, or special committees, or other teaching positions. Uh, They are also invited to attend member meetings, to vote on the hiring or firing of the senior pastor, to give input on major church decisions, and much more. Finally, as we prepare to go to our applications, let me just give a quick overview of the membership process at Vanguard for some of you that might be wondering. Uh, So here it is real quick, the Catalyst membership class. I'm excited, I'm overjoyed to announce that It is finally coming, and I know some of you have been waiting and talking to me and waiting and talking to me and wondering, is he ever going to do it? Well, I'm excited to announce that it is going to happen, Lord willing, provided Jesus doesn't come back between now and then, Sunday afternoon, June 2nd. And so if you are interested in learning more about church membership or you feel the Lord moving you to commit to membership here at Vanguard, I want to encourage you to sign up. Afterwards, I've got a clipboard in the back at the information table. You can sign up there, or you can go online to our calendar page, and you can register online if you want. So the first step is taking the class. It's an interactive, workshop-like class that basically gives you everything you need to know to make an informed decision about Vanguard. Next, at the end of the class, you're given an opportunity to fill out a membership application. The application asks you to write out your Christian testimony, to answer a few more questions and to sign our membership covenant. When you turn the application in, I'll schedule an interview with you where we'll sit down for 30, 60 minutes. We'll go over your application. I'll give you a chance to ask me questions in private and then ask you to share your Christian testimony. If that goes well, 
and you still like me after the interview, and you like Vanguard, we'll put your name in the worship folder for two weeks. The reason we do this is to give any existing members an opportunity to voice concerns about a member candidate or to resolve conflict with any member candidate in order to protect the unity of our church. After the two weeks is done, we will admit candidates to membership, and some, if they need to be baptized, will arrange baptism for them. Finally, applications. Here's two, and I'm going to keep them simple. If you are not a member and you've been coming to Vanguard for a while, I want to encourage you to prayerfully consider membership. You could start that process by taking the Catalyst class. You're not obligated to join the church if you take Catalyst, um, but most people do choose to become members after taking it. Every now and then, I have somebody that chooses not to because they find out something that we believe, but they're glad that they took the class because, oh, I'm glad I found that out now before I chose to get married to Vanguard. And that's okay. We'd rather have those conversations up front and tell you who we are, what we're about, what we believe, so that we don't run into problems down the road. And next, if you're a member... I want to encourage you to reevaluate your membership. And what I mean by that is I think it's wise to periodically do a check, a self-check to see, am I keeping my membership covenant? Am I worshiping, serving, and giving faithfully? Am I avoiding gossip? Am I resolving conflict biblically? Am I, am I protecting the unity of the church? I think it's just good and healthy to evaluate every now and then how am I doing there? And let me just say, members, I cannot thank you enough for all that you do. You serve joyfully. You give faithfully. Um, you, our members made it possible for Vanguard Bible Church to come into existence. And I, those of you that have come more recently to Vanguard, I hope that you take a moment to thank some of our launch team members who sacrificed and gave and served long before we were here, long before we actually were on the radar, as they say. It was their sacrifice and their giving that made it possible for you to be here now and to enjoy the benefits of this church. Well, I appreciate you listening today and taking good notes and being patient. I know there's a lot of content I needed to cover. I just want to reiterate again, there is no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. Because the Lord did not design the Christian life to be lived alone. And nobody should say, after you've attended or visited our church for a while, who is that masked man or woman? Your membership matters. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Father, Thank you that you, in your infinite wisdom, you care enough, you love us enough to urge and even command us to belong. You know that as sheep, we are prone to wander, we are prone to be autonomous because of our inheritance in nature, we, we resist accountability, we fear being known by others, we want to be independent free of commitment, and the world encourages that kind of thinking.
Lord, thank you that you know you made us to belong to a church family. Lord, I just want to thank you for those that have made that decision already. They've been faithful. They've served. They've gave. They've protected the church. Please, Lord, would you bless them and encourage them for doing that, for honoring you in keeping their covenant. Lord, for those who have been coming to Vanguard for a while and they're not sure if this is the place for them, maybe they've been putting off that decision, or maybe they, they weren't sure if they believed in membership. Lord, would you just speak to them? Would you guide them? Would you show them what you're doing in their life and how you're using Vanguard in their life? And Father, we just want to ask finally that you would add to our numbers this year as a church, that you would strengthen our church by adding members. That Lord, you might help us to proclaim the gospel faithfully this year. And you might even bless us with some conversions to Christ, those who would repent of their sins and by faith trust in Christ alone for their salvation. So then we can bring them into the church family as well. We love you and we thank you for your word and how it encourages us, how it challenges us, and it reminds us of your love for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.